You are listening to the audio preaching podcast of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Fallbrook, California, pastored by James Christensen. Though located in the heart of Southern California, you will hear powerful, relevant, and life-changing preaching from the Word of God. Pastor Christensen believes that every Christian can reach their potential for the Lord. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. Uh, take your Bibles and I go to Acts 17. I'll dispense with all the, all the niceties here and as we've gone on, but it's good to have my wife with me, my wife Rita, who's been my wife for 21 years. That is a remarkable thing. That's a ministry in and of itself. And then, of course, we have three kids, but uh, we have Derek with us, who's nine, and Serena, who's six, who, of course, can do no wrong. And, uh, and thank you, church, for the graciousness of putting us up in a hotel. This was on a whim, and so uh, we just really want to be here to be a blessing. And, and uh, hey, we'll see what happens here. I guess we'll find out at the end of this whether I've been a blessing, right? <laughs> Acts 17, verse number 16, uh, the topic is church planting. Um, want to talk a little bit about philosophy uh, in church planting and, and some decisions that have to be made very, very early uh, in your church planting endeavor, uh, because obviously a lot of things in church planting can evolve as the Lord works out His uh, purpose in your life, uh, but I think it's important to make some decisions early about what you're going to do about certain philosophical positions. And so uh, I'm not here to chastise anybody. I'm just here to tell you how I see the thing and how I believe God has worked it out in our life. And uh, this particular, next year in March, it'll be 20 years uh, having planted Freedom's Way Baptist Church. And uh, God has been very, very gracious to us. I can't tell you how gracious. Many of you know how gracious he's been to you. So uh, there's no reason for me to tell you how gracious he's been to me because you understand. Acts chapter 17, verse 16, the Bible says, Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, What will this babbler say? Others, some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto that place there. I have a hard time pronouncing it. May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom ye therefore ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Neither is worship with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live, move, have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. 
For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commanded all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit certain men claved and believed. I'd like to ask you this question this evening as we just take a few moments here to ponder the thought of observing the culture or embracing the culture. I want to ask you the question this evening, how do we interact with the culture in which we find ourselves in today? That is, the culture, not the 1980s culture, not the 1990s culture, but the culture of right now, 2021, and it seems that the culture is changing second by second. It seems as we're trying to adapt to one part of it, it switches scripts again, and there's another section of it that we're supposed to completely believe. Depending on who you ask when it comes to observing the culture or embracing the culture, you will get a myriad of answers depending on who you read. There seems to be a steady stream of books written on this topic of interacting with the culture from various perspectives, written, of course, by very austere evangelical leaders. But this evening, while I have gleaned some interesting thoughts from many of these authors, I'm really far more interested in what the acts of the apostles were in regards to interacting with the culture. God has given us a divinely inspired blueprint that more than sufficiently answers the question, how do I interact with the culture? I do not necessarily need to read what David Platt has to say on the subject. What I need to know is what the Apostle Paul says on the subject. Our sermon this evening, briefly, observing the culture or embracing the culture. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity. Lord, we pray you bless your word. In Jesus Christ's name we ask it. Amen. There's been much talk today, really for many years, frankly, about how we go about interacting with the culture that we find ourselves in. As of late, There has been a noticeable and measurable pendulum shift in thinking that overtly suggests that in order to win over the culture for Christ, that we must embrace the culture, that we must be like the culture, that we must act like the culture, and truncate our message to be more palatable to the culture. Some have even written books on why the church needs to learn the language of the culture, learn the lingo of the culture, and learn the music and methods of the culture. Many have gone so far as to say that we, have not, we are not just to adapt to the culture, but we need to adopt the culture. The prevailing ideology, especially among the younger set, is that in order for us to reach the culture, we must be like the culture. We must adopt its methods, adopt its manners, but place a thin veneer of Christianity over it in order to sanctify it. Ironically, many in the younger camp and 
some as well in the older camp, will run to Acts 17 to make their broader point of embracing and adopting the culture. But I ask you this evening, is this what Paul is advocating for and communicating to us in this passage of Scripture? I would argue that this is not what Paul is saying in Acts 17, and that many in the younger camp, and some older ones as well, are merely reading into the text what they truly, truly want the text to say, especially when they have read it through the lens of another author that they appreciate. So one of the first things that is usually offered in the culture is the bait-and-switch technique. It's a very popular thought in modern Christianity today. It's the notion of impacting the culture through what is called bait-and-switch, or as another preacher said, flipping the script in mid-play. That is, one veils his or her Christian convictions in order to achieve some level of secular and social stardom. And then once you've risen through the various ranks of social status and have gained a following that is in the thousands and even millions, then you flip the script and reveal you have been a Christian all along and now folks will listen. There is a twofold problem with that approach, if I might. Number one, that approach is dishonest on its face. You're not being honest about who you are. And secondly... It's faithless and suggests that God needs your help to get the gospel out. I heard one modern Christian, I heard one modern Christian modelist say, quote, but once you have a name, then folks are more likely going to hear and gravitate to the message of the gospel. But here is the problem with that kind of thinking, folks. Why would God need your name when he has a name which is above every name? Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, flash for you folks, God does not need your name to get the gospel out. Why would we ever want to associate ourselves with the sins of Nimrod and Babel in Genesis 11.4 where they stated, go to let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach to heaven and let us make a name. Again, some would run to this passage in Acts 17 to make the broader point that we must somehow uh, rise in the ranks as they suggest Paul did here in order to communicate the gospel to a broader audience. But again, The passage of Scripture is not saying that. But it's not enough for me to just say that. So let's look at the passage if we might. Verse number 16. While Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. If you will, Paul is worked up over what he sees. Paul is, listen folks, Paul is observing the culture, rightly so. He's observing it around him, and he is not about to adopt what he sees. Not only is Paul a blood-washed child of the king, but he is also a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin. 
You say, what, what does that have anything to do with this? Well, if there's anything that Paul abhors, it's idolatry. Paul was sickened by the idols of the culture. In no way was Paul ever wanting to associate himself with the idols of the culture. But yet, some well-meaning young preacher might look around at all the fanfare and all the acceptance and all the adulation that the idols of the culture receive, and he might get to thinking, quote, how can I be like that? How can I receive that level of acceptance and that level of recognition? How can I emulate that so that I might win them to Christ? But might I add, say, and may I say to you that Paul observed his culture and what Paul observed stirred him up, but not in the positive. I want you to look at verse 17. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Uh, see here, notice in verse 17, with the Jews in the synagogue, he shared the same worldview. Here's where a lot of these younger generations will go. They'll point at verse 17 and say, look it, he, he preached differently to the Jews in the synagogue than he did to those in the marketplace. Well, duh. The Jews in the synagogue, he shared a worldview with them. But with those in the marketplace, he did not share that common touchstone. But this does not suggest that Paul somehow veiled his Christian convictions and practiced more of a down-low Christianity when in the marketplace, but then took the veil off when he got into the synagogue and preached to the Jews. As we continue to read the text, we clearly see what Paul's strategy is. Look at verse 18. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, what will this babblers say, other some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Again, if Paul was trying to be accepted among the intellectuals of his day, verse 18 should put an end to that debate. When the philosophers on Mars Hill encountered Paul, they were having none of what Paul was serving up. They said, quote, what will this babbler say. And that, by the way, is not a compliment. The word picture is one who spits out seeds. These intellectuals were saying that Paul had not truly and fully digested his thoughts and that he's just picking things up and spitting them out as he goes. They go on to say, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, plural, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. They thought Paul was pre preaching a plurality of gods, and they especially did not like this notion of resurrection from the dead. Then notice what happens in verses 19 through 21. And they took him and brought him unto the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears, we would know therefore what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So here's Paul's big moment. Here God places Paul, if you will, on the biggest platform of his day. Paul has not compromised to get to this platform. Paul has not truncated the gospel in his preaching. 
And to further these truths, the invitation to speak at this philosopher's convention was not because he smelled like the world, looked like the world, and acted like the world. No, not at all. His invitation to this august platform was based on the message of Jesus and the resurrection. If you will, Paul spoke fluent Christianese. (laughs) Paul's invitation to speak was not based upon compromise to the culture. His invitation to speak was in spite of it. They did not care for the resurrection. They thought he was preaching a strange deity, but instead they just invited him to the greatest, grandest platform of his day. He was on the Oprah Winfrey show of his day. You say, what was his message? Obviously, if he's on such an august platform, he must have compromised in some way, must have kind of bent and shifted his message or truncated the gospel. No, not at all. I want you to look at verse 22. He says, He stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're too superstitious. Oh, he starts off great. (laughs) For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. So here is Paul on the biggest platform of his day. And he got here without embracing the culture. So what is he going to preach? Four things, very briefly. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Paul begins speaking in verse 23. Take note. He says this, for as I passed by, stop, look up here. We have to observe the culture. We have to observe it. I didn't say we had to embrace it, but we have to observe the culture. If we are shepherds, under shepherds of God's children, who by the way, are only, we're only stewarding over as preachers, then we need to be passing by and observing some things. Paul observed their culture, but Paul did not become the culture. There are all kinds of devilish and strange things happening in our culture today that, as I mentioned at the outset, seem to be changing second by second. Some new thing needs to be embraced that for 2,000 years was an accepted norm, and now it's supposed to be completely upended. Folks, we need to observe BLM, but you need not embrace it. You need to observe critical race theory and what's being taught in some of our classrooms, but you need not embrace it. You need to observe what is happening in our schools and how marriage and sexual identity is being redefined on a moment-by-moment basis, but you need not embrace it. So what does he do? He starts off in verse 24 with Genesis. You say, why? Because he didn't have a common touchstone with this crowd. He didn't go to the Romans Road because he wasn't in a Hiles convention. He went to Genesis because these guys had their creation screwed up. So he says, God that made the world and all things therein seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in temples made with hands. 
Paul begins with creation. Not a deistic notion of creation, which some of these philosophers may have held to, but a biblical notion of a six-day creation. You say, you believe that God created the world in seven literal days? I'm like, no, I believe it made him in six and rested on the seventh. If Paul wanted to score points with these guys, he's not starting off well. He starts off with the fact that God created us all, and it's him that gets the credit. He's the one that did it. He's the omnipotent one. He's the one that did it all, not any of these idols. Then I want you to notice what else he does here in verse number 25. This God that made everything in verse 24, by the way, looks at that same august crowd and says this. By the way, he's not worshiped with men's hands. As though he needed anything. Seeing he giveth to all life and breath and things. And hath made of one blood all nations of, of men. For to dwell on all the face of the earth. By the way verse 26 destroys Black Lives Matter in a second. Hath made of one blood all nations of men. For to dwell on all the face of the earth. And hath determined the times before appointed. And the bounds of their habitation. That they should seek. The Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And a lot of the young group will say, well, there it is. Paul went to their culture in order to quote what they said. Listen, even a busted clock is right twice. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. Paul essentially looks at them and says, listen, you're not right with God. Paul goes on to say, all your attempts to please this unknown God with temples and with idols graven by your own hands is a complete affront to him. He basically says without saying it, you're a sinner and God is not pleased with your worship. That's not something that Osteen would say. He goes on with creation. He goes with the fall and says, you're fallen. You're worshiping him wrong. I said that. You heard me say it. You're worshiping him wrong. And then I want you to notice what he does in verse 30. Redemption. And the times of this ignorance God winked at. Boy, isn't that a gracious part of a verse? but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. So, he looks at this crowd. He says, God created the whole thing. By the way, you're not right with him. You're, you're worshiping him the wrong way. He's not impressed with your temples. He's not impressed with your idols. So how do you get right with him? Repent. Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn from the darkness to light. Turn from your idols and turn to the one true God who made heaven and earth. Paul preaches repentance to these philosophers. He tells them they're wrong and God is not pleased with them. You know, what's interesting about that passage you mentioned, Brother Danny, in Genesis, uh, excuse me, in Exodus chapter 32, I believe it is, the golden calves. Aaron said before they went into their dance, this will be a feast unto the Lord. You can have great intentions. Aaron and the crowd had great intentions in that text, but their worship was not received. Paul preaches repentance and says, listen, God commands all men 
everywhere to repent. And then he sums it all up with consummation in verse 31. Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Listen, it was the resurrection that got him made fun of. So he ends his message with resurrection? It wasn't popular to begin with. It wasn't embraced by the culture, by the august crowd there of philosophers, but it didn't matter to him. He just kept preaching it. So here he gives him creation in verse 24, gives him the fall, verses 25 through 29, gives him redemption in verse 30, and now in verse 31 gives him consummation. Let me tell you how this is all going to wrap up. Here is what happens when you do not repent. God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And he will do it through Jesus Christ, whom he has raised from the dead. The message of the resurrection is what caused these philosophers to call Paul names and accuse him of preaching strange gods in the first place. But Paul has not eliminated that at all in his message. He didn't truncate it. He didn't uh, shy away from it. He didn't uh, massage the message. Paul observed his culture, knew that the only answer for the culture was Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Paul did not compromise in order to get to that platform. And then let's conclude with impact this, this evening. Look at verses 32 and following. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we'll hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed. So catch it. Some mocked. Some said, we'll hear you again. And some believed. I want you to think about this, Christian. Think about this real hard. If you compromise and adapt to the culture in order to get the opportunity to preach the gospel on a grand platform like Paul did here, the end result is that some will mock, some will hear you again, and some will believe. The converse is also true. If you do not compromise and you do not adapt and adopt the culture, and God places you on a grand platform just like this to preach his glorious gospel, the end result will be some will mock, some will hear you again, and some will believe. So I'll ask you again, why compromise? Let me conclude with Paul's opening words to the saints at Rome in Romans 1.16. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. The power to change people is not in our oratory skill. The power to change people is not in our ability to adapt and to adopt to the culture and somehow be cool to the culture. The power to change people is not in my name or what others might think of me or my church. The power to change people belongs solely to God himself. God does not need my help. All I'm commanded to do is preach and let the power of God do the changing. Now, why compromise? when the end result on both sides is the same. Just be true to God. Thank you for listening to this preaching podcast from Cornerstone Baptist Church. We hope that you were encouraged. For more information about our ministry, you can find us online at cornerstonefallbrook.org.